touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Say our love is a flame, not an amber. Say it's me that you want to... Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the A-Slut Podcast. Obviously, standing for advice, sex, love, understanding, and trust. This week, we will be continuing with the history of non-monogamy. This is going to be part two. We're going to focus more on the more modern um, history of polyamory this time. It's going to be uh, quite interesting. So we've got the... There's three waves of modern polyamory, I guess, for lack of a better term. There's a 19th century transcendentalism, which we're going to talk about. Uh, it's a big word, but we'll go into it. This is around the Oneida community that we spoke about in part one. If you haven't checked out part one, go back one episode. It's only one episode. And check that out and have a listen to that and sort of get a feel of what uh, we're going on about here, I guess. Because it goes back a long way. Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about that. The second wave is in the 20th century, and it's around the countercultures in the 60s and 70s. So you've got communes, you've got multilateral marriage and swinging, which we'll be going into a bit. Are we talking about polyamorous communes? Even though the word polyamorous didn't really exist during this time, uh, it was still practiced. It was just under the under the name of ethical non-monogamy at that time. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, there was a lot of support groups in that sort of time as well, so we'll be talking about that. And we'll be talk- And the third wave is the bringing in of the internet and how that's shaped uh, how polyamory has sort of come together and, and done its thing as well. So we'll be talking a wee bit about that. The other thing that I want to touch on in, in all of this as well is that uh, there's a lot of roots in, in polyamory and non-monogamy and whatnot, especially in the modern sort of era, and we're going to talk about how women-friendly uh, polyam- uh, the roots of modern polyamory are. So it's not just, uh, obviously there was a lot of concern in the last episode and around Polygyny, and because uh, the ancient history was more on the polygyny side, where a male has multiple women partners, um, this does continue on through this episode as well, but it's looked on in a bit of a different way, where women have a lot more power than what people think they did, especially through the 1800s and the Oneida community, which, yes, people, the Oneida community is a cult, but it's really interesting in the in the historical side. He's actually... Uh, noise is co- is noted for coining the term um, free love, so that's an interesting part and one of the tidbits you'll learn as we go through this. Um, things are happening in my life, people. It's it's exciting. It's fun. I'm still reading Emily Nagoski's book. If you haven't read it, come as you are. Please do check it out. It's absolutely fantastic. I'm learning a lot from that. Um, I sat down with a potential sub uh, during the week to hash out my all of my um, my checklist and sort of my casual contract if you want to call it that and what we want to get out of what we're potentially doing and, and all of that sort of stuff so that was really really fun to go through and 
it's been a really really good process for me again I haven't actually done it for a fair while but it was really really cool to to get back into it and um, and go through everything so for those of you who don't know this this is my kink side of things that uh, that I obviously get involved in um, I draw up a checklist and things like that to ensure that everybody is on the same page that everybody's knows what's happening and so on and so forth it's basically just a um, it's kind of just a this is where we're at and this is what we're going to be and this is what it's going to be like sort of thing so that's it's really really fun going through that you tend to figure out how much you've changed as well as organizing everything with the other person and that's really a lot of fun as well um, so that was really cool. I went to a party on, well, on Saturday night, which was really, really fun for me because I don't get to party much. I've been working seven days for a long time, and but I had a day off and was able to go and have a few drinks and chill out with some really cool people. That was a lot of fun as well. My dog has continued to be an absolute pain. Um, but yeah, so that, that's what's happening with me at the moment. Um, Unfortunately, no no listener questions this week. Um, last week was really, really cool. I had some decent feedback about that as well, which was awesome. But without further ado, um, let's talk about modern non-monogamy. Please enjoy. I'm daydreaming on my future boyfriend. He's my favorite person in my Let's get this underway then, team. So I'm going to start uh, off this episode by doing a bit of a recap on the last one because it is a two-part kind of series, I guess. So, yeah, last week we talked about more the ancient sort of history around non-monogamy and, and polyamory. Uh, we talked about polygyny, all of that sort of stuff. We talked about... Uh, how it all sort of started in ancient Mesopotamia, which was a fully matriarchal society guided by the female goddess Ishtar, and how women were to go into this temple and a man would uh, come and choose them and they would go and have sex. And yeah, uh, ancient Egypt was an interesting one where any sexual practice was accepted and condemned at one point or another. So that includes polyamory and that side of things. A woman uh, could go into the Temple of Amun and have sex with anyone she wanted, which uh, was followed by a celebration, which is kind of cool. 
there's a whole bunch of we talked about China in a, in a huge, huge way because um, there's a whole bunch of Chinese history uh, during the Zhou Dynasty where female homosexuality was widespread, but males was forbidden. And so that they thought female prostitutes required more yin and whatnot from there. You had the Qin Dynasty where sex was only for procreation but allowed men to see concubines, sort of a kind of slave sort of thing there. Uh, they returned back to the more Taoist doctrines uh, during the Sui dynasty where Chinese males once again desired many sexual relations with women. And then we move into more the Mediterranean. The Ionians settled into the North Aegean islands and their rulers were polygynists. So again this means that they could um, one man with many wives is probably the best, easiest way to put that. 4th century BC, we talked about the Etruscans of Italy and the women just giving themselves to men that were not their husbands and sort of like a public orgy, I guess. Um, and there was a lot of illegitimate children in that sort of period. Um, we talked about the Torah or the Old Testament um, with the many ways that they touch on polygamy including Exodus 21.10, states multiple marriages are not to diminish the status of the first wives, first wife. Deuteronomy had a couple in verse 21 and 17. And they say that they shouldn't have too many wives, which means obviously that they were allowed some. And, yeah, so examples there were Esau, Isaac's son had two wives, Jacob had two wives, Gideon had many wives and 70 sons. King David had several. King Solomon had something like 300 wives and 700 concubines or something like that. King Rehoboam had 18 wives and 60 concubines. We talked about how the poor men were allowed concubines and whatnot during this period as well. Uh, we moved on to Islamic law where a man may take up to four wives but they're each given their own property, assets and dowry and they don't really have any contact with each other. Uh, in India, we talked about Manu, so it was it was allowed for a husband to seek pleasure elsewhere with no retribution. However, should a wife violate the duty which she owes to her lord, the king shall cause her to be devoured by dogs. Ancient Greece, um, the Eration against Nera, we keep mistresses for our pleasures, concubines for constant attendance, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be our faithful housekeepers. So wives had virtually no freedom for sexual or romantic ex uh, expression, but men could choose from anyone, really. Roman Empire, this is an interesting one because most people think monogamy came from the Roman Empire, especially when you go through the Christian faith and things like that. Uh, yeah, the Romans were seen to have been part of this. But the Roman Empire allowed men to marry women at 12, whether she had reached purity or not, to engage in adultery, to have sex with prostitutes, concubines and slaves and to rape women. Wives had no rights and were obligated to submit to their husbands. However, prostitutes had more freedom. North American tribal marriage varies from tribe to tribe. and But the majority of them had practiced some form of polygyny. And yet we moved up to France and England. So I'm just trying to remember what we all went through. Um, I think I'm doing alright, to be honest. <laughs> um, 
So around 1122 AD, France and England enjoyed cultured courts, including a court of love. Um, and that court of love claimed that love can only exist in affairs and not marriage. Marriage was for procreating. During the 16th century, we had Queen Marguerite of France, who was involved with 12 men at the same time. Dr. Martin Luther claimed that Jesus probably committed adultery with Mary Magdalene and that sexual impulse was both natural and irrepressible. 1950, Parliament at Nuremberg uh, decreed that because so many men were killed during the Thirty Years' War, the churches for the following ten years could not admit any man under the age of 60 into a monastery. Priests and ministers were not bound by the monasteries. 17th century England um, had a term that referred to a person with three spouses, implying that it was common enough to have a law making it illegal. And that was trigamy. So was, that's sort of this polygamy sort of thing again, but set to a set number. Diary entries through medieval times, you know, through the 19th century, spoke of love for neighbours, which is interesting again because you could, could not marry for love, but there was love for neighbours. And Victorian women routinely kicked out their husbands to accommodate a female friend, spending the night kissing, cuddling, and pouring out their thoughts. Then there was the Church of Latter-day Saints that we spoke about with Joseph Smith. Uh, part of that was kind of part of the Aneda sort of thing, which we're going to be talking about today. Uh, that was in 1831. And so they had plural marriage, plural marriage or celestial marriage. And the polygamy itself wasn't recorded until 1843. Remained secret till 52 and officially denounced it in 1890. But there is a sect as part of that which continues to practice polygyny in secret. I think that's for you Ireland people. Uh, like I said, uh, the Oneida community in New York, this was around the mid-1800s, and we're going to be talking a fair bit about that today, probably. This is when we're getting into the more common, uh, more modern side of things. Um, so there was Josiah Warren and Stephen Pearl Andrews who started Modern Times in Long Island, which is now Brentwood, New York. There was a whole bunch of prostitution and pornography um, in the Victorian era. The Industrial Revolution uh, talked about a whole bunch of people having to join in with each other and there was a lot of people who realized that humans are social and sexual beings and that one person can't possibly fulfill any single need for their partner. Uh, the Cheyenne Indians would often have a third wife. The industrial age, post-Victorian era, era became acceptable to marry for love, not just for procreation and for status. And this gave women more, more chance, more economic power of their own to be able to leave their husbands and go and do what they wanted, which is really, really cool. Dating evolved in the 1920s, and that sexual enjoyment was seen as a right, um, and this is sort of one of the waves that comes through in modern non-monogamy that we're 
we will be talking about a little bit later on as well. <coughs> Excuse me. There was the Ethnographic Atlas, which was brought in at some point as well, around the sort of 1960 to 1980. There was a marital composition of 1,231 societies, 186 were monogamous, 453 had occasional polygyny, 588 had more frequent polygyny, and 4 had polyandry. So 85% of the world's population is kind of skewed, but they did include some form of polygamy. 61, Robert Heinlein wrote a book called Stranger in a Strange Land, which emphasised open sexual relationships and used terms such as lion marriage and nesting, which we've later come to realise as nesting partners and whatnot like that, and also wrote Time Enough for Love, which is along the same sort of thing. We talked about John and Barbara Williamson opening the Sandstone Retreat, um, a nudist-type spa where it was found that they would eventually you know, engage in swinging and group sex in the what, what was called the ballroom, which I find really, really, really funny, because I'm a child, apparently. They were not granted a growth centre, but eventually they did come back through, and there was a whole bunch of books and articles around the sexual revolution, which included... Um, you know, uh, things like Esquire, Playboy, Penthouse. Uh, it was even on the Dick Cavett show. All sorts of stuff there. 71 to 91 saw the creation of the Carista Commune, an intentional community centered in San Francisco. We'll talk a wee bit about that later on. And then, obviously, where the word polyamory actually started, which, like I said, a lot of linguistics people and and English teachers and all of that around the uh, classics teachers, history teachers, will be really, really annoyed at the word polygamy with the Greek and Latin mix. It should, re uh, yeah, the Greek poly and the Latin gammy, meaning many. Um, it should be polyerosy, apparently. Which keeps it both a Greek root word and explaining. So that's always an interesting part of it as well. But for now, let's get back to the United States and let's start talking <coughs> a little bit about the three waves, or well, three noticeable waves, I guess, of um, of non-monogamy um, within the United States. So, like I said in the introduction. Um, the first one is Transcendentalism, which was a philosophical movement uh, in the 1820s and 30s in the Eastern United States, which basically believed in the inherent goodness of people and nature. So they believed that society and its, institu in, and its institutions have corrupted the purity of a person, and they have faith that people are at their best when they're truly self-reliant and independent. So they're not uh, depending on anybody else to go through and do what is needed from there. But the polyamorous identity did not exist uh, during the 19th century. But this initial expression of non-monogamy had a profound influence on later 
poly slash non-mono thinking and communities. There were several groups of people who practiced a multiple partner relationship style in the United States in the mid to late 1800s, most influenced by the 19th century transcendental movement, and that came from Hutchins. Brook Farm was an experimental free love community, says Hutchins again, populated by Quakers, Shakers, Mormons, and other charismatic leaders who roamed up and down the East Coast preaching, a doctrine that challenged conventional Christian doctrines of sin and human unworthiness. So if you think of the, you know, there's people who come to your door and they go, <clears throat> let me tell you about the Word of God. These people were kind of the opposite. Um, well, to a degree, I guess. They were still doing the same sorts of things, but it was challenging what the Christian doctrine said about sin and how how shit humans are, I guess, in, in the grand scheme of things. And dur during this time, this transcendentalism side of things, and this is going to play a big part in what we talk about today, so we <clears throat> want to talk about the fact that this is all under the sort of history of non-monogamy and whatnot. I do want to go into a few things around uh, a few of the communities and communes. Some might call cults. Um, the first one that we'll talk about, the Oneida community, was almost definitely a cult. Uh, evidently, he got it on to, uh, with uh, his nephew, I believe, uh, did John Noyes, who's the founder of it, uh, amongst a number of other things. But I think it's still interesting to talk about. So John Humphrey Noyes founded the Oneida community in 1848. His, he established a system of complex marriage, so everybody married to each other, basically. Uh, so each, marry, each male was theoretically married to each female, and where each regarded the other as a brother or sister. That came from Muncie. This rejection of monogamous marriage was intended to offer an alternative to the monogamous relation, which fostered exclusiveness and selfishness, and worked to counter communism. From Muncie again. Children similarly believed, similarly lived together in a communal children's house. So they had their own house, they did their own sort of thing, which is kind of different as well. Parents were not permitted to show special affection to their own children, but were mandated to treat all of the community equally. It kind of actually sounds like an ideal world, right? Uh, everybody just loves each other and treats everybody the same. There's no bigotry or anything like that, it's just a bunch of great people living together. Um, but, alas, there are some downsides to it as well. So, this community was a perfectionist religious community, or society, whichever you want to call it, uh, that believed that Jesus had already returned and made it possible for them to bring about his millennial kingdom themselves be free of sin and perved in this world, not just in heaven, for lack of a better term. <clears throat> so they practiced co uh, communalism, so what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine throughout the whole uh, the whole community. And it was in, sense of, in the terms of property and possessions as well. Uh, complex marriage, male sexual continence, and mutual criticism. Now, Obviously, the male sexual continence 
It is a form of intercourse which the penetrative partner does not attempt to ejaculate within the receptive partner. So they didn't come inside them or anything like that. But they instead attempted to remain at the plateau phase of intercourse for as long as possible to avoid that seminal emission. So basically, they it's basically an early form of edging, I guess. <laughs> which, is, which is kind of interesting. Um, there were smaller, noisy communities around the sort of northeast of the United States. You know, you've got Newark, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, uh, Cambridge in Vermont. And the community started with 87 members, grew to 172 within the first sort of two years. 208 by the next two, and 306 in 1878. And the branches were closed in 1854, except for the Wallingford branch, Wallingford, Connecticut, which operated until devastated by a tornado in 1878. And the Oneida community dissolved in 1881. Eventually became the giant silverware company, Oneida Limited. So there's a fun, free, fun wee fact for you. Um, the Oneida Limited company, with all the silverware and all of that sort of stuff. One of the world's largest designers of stainless steel, cutlery, and all of that sort of stuff. Came from what a lot of people considered a cult. So the structure of it was really interesting as well. So it only reached a maximum population of about 300, so it's not huge. But it had a bureaucracy of about 27 standing, committing, standing committees and 48 administrative sections. So, really quite complex there. The silverware that I just mentioned on before began in 1877, so really quite late on. Uh, but they also manufactured leather travel bags, palm hats, rustic garden furniture, game traps, all sorts of things like that to continue what the community wanted to do. All members were expected to work according to his or her, his or her abilities. Women tended to do many of the domestic duties, although more skilled jobs tended to remain with an individual member. Financial manager, for example, held his post throughout the life of the community. Community members rotated through the more unskilled jobs, working in the house, the fields, or various industries. As Oneida thrived, it began to hire outsiders to work in these positions as well, and they were a major employer in the area, with approximately 200 employees by 1870. And this is where we're going to talk about more of the non-monogamy side, because um, this is it's great. This is great thing called complex marriage, which you put it that way is this can be kind of daunting, I guess. I can understand that, but if, let me put it in a different term. And I spoke about it earlier on. This term called free love, and noise is credited with coining this this term free love. So the Oneida community believed strongly in this system, uh, where any member was free to have sex with any other who consented. And that's an important part here. It's not just, let's go and ransack and pillage and, and rape and do what we like. It's, it had to be consented, otherwise it was out of there. The other interesting part of this is that possessiveness in this community, possessiveness and exclusive relationships were heavily frowned upon. So that then still enabled this sort of big, sort of big loving family in this community. 
uh, as well. So if you wanted to be with just one person, it was really difficult to in this sort of situation. But unlike the 20th century social movements that happened later on, like the sexual revolution of the 60s where everybody got high and got on it, the Anadians did not seek consequence-free sex for pleasure, but believed that because the natural outcome of intercourse was pregnancy, raising children should be a communal, communal responsibility. Women over the age of 40 were to act as sexual mentors to adolescent boys, as these relationships had minimal chance of conceiving. Partly because of the young boys, partly because of the, let's say, more advanced women. And furthermore, these women became, a relig became religious role models for the young men. Likewise, older men often introduced young women to sex. And Noyes often used his own judgment in determining what it was that were taught to these young girls. Uh, the partnerships that would form and would often encourage relationships between the non-devout and the devout in the community. And he did that hoping that the attitudes and behaviours of the more devout would would rub off on the more on the ones that weren't perhaps weren't so devout. Now it it was even Terza Miller as somebody who was in this commune and it was found in the archives that she writes extensively, actually, about her romantic and sexual relations with other members of Anada, which is really kind of interesting as well, I think, that there's actually a full recollection around the Anada community as well, which is, for me, I think that's kind of cool. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit out there. But I do think it's it's kind of cool as well. The, the problem that happened with the Anada community is he Noyes handed it off to his son, for lack of a better term. And it sort of just went downhill from there. His son was a doctor, Dr. Theodore Noyes, and he was an agnostic. So this already didn't sit well. I don't know why he would hand over a relationship to somebody who's not religious, but not only was the fact that he was an agnostic bad enough, he also ran the community with a tight fist, which was resented by the people. So, John Humphrey, noise, was more of a free-loving kind of thing, whereas Theodore liked to rule everything his way. It got so bad that even John himself had to come back from Wallingford, where he's living, to put things back in order. By then it was too late. Factions within the community formed, some even with the opposition on the outside. And then in 1879, due to the opposition and hostility from all around, Noyes, who by this point had already withdrawn from leadership, felt compelled to abandon the system of complex marriage. Complex marriage. Even, though, even though Noyes wanted to keep the community together after this, some living married and others celibate, not preferred, problems occurred. Many of the members quickly got married, but since complex marriage was such an integrated part of their lives, the community would not settle down to their normal style of living. In 1880, a, a committee was appointed to consider the advisability of reorganising upon a joint stock basis. 
In January of 1881, the joint stock company called the Oneida Community Limited was set up, and the Oneida Community was abandoned. So that's sort of how the Oneida Community came through everything, and and how that part of it worked. Like I said, the, the most interesting part of all of this, with regards to this history of non-monogamy, is that is this thought of complex marriage and everybody sort of being married to each other, which I think is is kind of a an ideal way of of doing things, I guess. But obviously there's there's downfalls when it comes to different sort of people getting involved and and whatnot there. But um yeah, it's it's just one of those things I guess that if you get all the right people, then it's amazing. But if you don't get all the right people, then it can sort of go a little bit haywire, I guess. But yeah, that's sort of how the Anatic Commune community, or whatever you want to call it, um, sort of went about, and the the rise and the fall of that, I guess. Um, but I, I think it's actually quite a big. A big sort of thing in the world of, of non-monogamy and the history of it and how it's coming forward and it's coming around again now I guess and becoming more and more of a, of a well-known thing I think uh, but yeah, moving on from Oneida uh, there was the Nashoba commune as well which was a free love community established in 1862 by Francis Fanny Wright wealthy Scottish immigrant and she formed a large communal farm, bringing together both free blacks and whites to work and make love. She opposed the racist trend at the time and declared, sex and declared quote, Sexual passion is the best form of happiness. Unquote. So Francis sort of built this farm and developed this farm and formed it, not so much as a non-monogamous thing or uh, a sexual thing or anything of that nature, it was more for freedom amongst everybody and equalism, equality, not equalism, Jesus, uh, equality across everybody, especially when it came to the slave trade and everything like that. So she had a lot of um, a lot of work to do in that sort of stuff to build that up, and yeah, so non-monogamy was a big part of that as well. I won't go too in depth on that because then it'll likely just get boring and. And and whatnot there. So there's a few different parts around that sort of 19th century era that has formed what we know today as modern non-monogamy. So we're going to move on here. We're going to move into the second wave of modern non-monogamy or polyamory, whichever way you want to put it. I say non-monogamy because I still don't believe that that word was used back in this time. Um, but we're going to go through the, the, the swing in 60s and 70s um, now a little bit. Uh, people who were who grew up in that sort of era would have some sort of idea of how how much freedom there was and, you know, the whole hippie movement and all that sort of thing. So, And there was a very high sort of sexual uh, reprisal there, I guess, for lack of a better term, an uprising. But so... The 60s and 70s did represent an important period 
in the evolution of identities that allowed increasing sexual and gender latitude. Feminists included sexual issues such as the repeal of abortion laws and access to safe legal birth control to their larger agenda of gender equity. Gays and lesbians began to question their hegemony, 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 I always forget how to say this word, of heterosexuality, and together with feminists exposed gender roles as socially constructed. Transgendered people began to emphasize the performative nature of gender. Bisexuals further destabilized the blend of gender and sexuality by minimizing the importance of their romantic partners' genders. Finally, Social and economic conditions contributed to an increase in autonomy for women and sexual minorities, especially the gays and lesbians. Industrialization, shrinking families, and the separation of sexuality from procreation enabled women to bear fewer children and gays and lesbians to develop ermine enclaves. Polyamory evolved as a direct result of the sexual revolution and intertwined with the alternative sexual forms previously discussed, especially the bisexual and free love movements. Like other aspects of polyamorous community, the history of the movement has some points of contention. As they always will be. But there's we're gonna we're gonna talk about a few different ways here because it's it, it is under the the counterculture umbrella. So like I said, we're gonna talk about communes. We're gonna talk about multilateral marriage and swinging. We're gonna talk about non-monogamous communes which were specific to those sorts of things and we're going to talk a little bit about support groups here as well okay so the the whole commune side of things is a bit of a tough one but they were one form of a countercultural group the community movement which had declined in the United States during the late 19th century so we're talking you know the Oneida community the Neshoba all of that sort of stuff but it reformed it reemerged it reformed in the form of communes in the 60s and 70s. This second iteration maintained a focus on creating a chosen family for people who were establishment dropouts, disillusioned with the dominant lifestyles in America, and people who believed they could find a better way of life in a group living experience with people of a similar thought process. Now, communes often emphasize the value of intimate relationships, personal growth, spiritual rebirth and cooperation over competition which is kind of rare in our society now I think I feel there's a lot of competition to to get ahead as part of this as well there was a return to nature and a rebellion against the establishment many communities included some form of atypical sexuality from either celibacy all the way through to the previously noted term free love in saying that, though, only a minority of contemporary communes endorsed sexually non-exclusive relationships. That comes from Bunk and Vandriel in 89. I'm not sure I agree with that. Minority of contemporary communes endorsed sexually non-exclusive relationships. I'm sure, especially during the 60s and 70s, there was a lot more free love going around than people thought. It just wasn't put out there so much. But... At this juncture, I don't have the evidence to support that, but it's just a personal thought. So we'll move on to multilateral like marriage and swinging. So these are two sort of separate groups, but they're intertwined quite a bit. 
Um, so multilateral marriage it was the same as sort of a group marriage. So we talked before about the all-encompassing marriage of the Oneida community, where it was just complex marriage. It was difficult. It was very, very intertwined with a number of different things. But um, but yeah, research into these non-monogamous relationships peaked in the early 70s. And by that time, the sexual revolution had popularized sexual experimentation. And the concept of open and group mar marriages had gained notoriety. Americans culture, American culture was more sexually permissive than ever before. And the specter of AIDS had not yet destroyed the playful sense of sexual experimentation. Researchers such as the Constantines studied those involved in multilateral marriages, which they defined as three or more partners, each of whom considers him or herself to be married or committed in a functu functionally an analogous way, analogous way to more than one of the other partners. The Smiths compiled studies of sexual alternatives in marriage in an edited collection that would examine such diverse topics as co-marital sex, which is the open incorporation of extramarital sex into marital unions, group sex, infidelity, and group marriages. Research on swinging similarly flourished in the sexually adventurous 60s and 70s, documenting new trends in extramarital or co-marital sexual involvement. Studies examine swingers' race and ethnicity, social class, education, and political perspectives. The research created a profile of swinger, of a swinger as a white middle to upper middle class person in his or her late 30s who is fairly conventional always except for her or his lack of religious participation slash identification and participates in swinging. That comes from Jenks in 98. It's interesting that it's they have to note on the, the lack of religious participation and whatnot as part of that. Once the sexual revolution collided with the spread of AIDS and other STIs in the 80s, a time that Peterson characterized as the Great Repression, research on sexually non-exclusive relationships dwindled. Although very few such studies were published during the 80s and 90s, the practice of non-monogamous relationships Obviously endured, because we've still got them now, right? <laughs> it's not like it's going to stop. Now, during this time, the 60s and 70s, we talked about communes. There were specifically polyamorous slash non-monogamous communes. And these evolved in the late 60s and early 70s. You had John and Barbara Williamson, who we talked about last week. They established a sandstone community in Los Angeles after the Kirkridge Sexuality Conferences which served to network, to network non-monogamous clergy, research, writers, and artists on the East Coast. Sandstone was the, the encounter group-oriented love community in Topanga Canyon, California, and included such eminent counterculturalists as Betty Dodson and Sally Bin. Carista, who we're going to go, or Kirist, uh, we're going to go into a little bit more depth on, it's possibly the most influential non-monogamous proto-polyamorous intentional community. It was based in the San Fran Bay Area between 71 and 91. So quite a, quite a fair amount of time. 
During their 20-year existence of the community, the approximately 25 adult members lived either in separate group marriages or in a single group marriage. Kyrgyzstan was based on an experimental lifestyle that included group marriage, shared parenting, total economic sharing, a group growth process, and a utopian plan for improving life around the world by replicating their model of community living. Members owned and operated a computer sales business. And during her tenure there, Ryan Neering reported, living in a community that, that attempted to provide emotional support for everyone. Neering anticipated in seeking a Kirsten vision, which started with 12, but later amped up to 24 adults per family in their ideal, the goal they wanted to aim for. Now we're going to talk about Kirsten quite a bit here. It was basically a utopian community. It started in New York in about 1956 by John Peltz Pressman, also known as Bro Judd. It was, for most of its history, much of its history, Carista was centered on the ideals of polyfidelity and creation of intentional communities. Eventually, Carista oh, went through several incarn incarnations. And Burrow Judd himself spent time in New York in the 50s and did a lot of experiments through Central America, through Dominica, Honduras, and Belize in the 60s, and then finally settled in San Fran at the end of the 60s. And this is where the new tribe sort of came into place, uh, what they called the new tribe. And this was the Kirista Commune, so it wasn't a single building. It was founded in the... Hate Ashbury district, district of San Fran, and they maintained a very high profile, which included the publication of a free newspaper and several national media experiences, appearances. When it was active, Kirsten was a focal point for people interested in alternative and non-monogamous lifestyles. The terms polyfidelity and compersion were coined at the Kirsten Commune. I find that really, really interesting. Uh, Compersion was around long before polyamory was. And I like the term polyfidelity as well. Very, very similar sorts of things, but different at the same time. It's lovely. So, the commune developed an entire vocabulary around alternative lifestyles. For example, their term polyintimacy in their literature was similar to the term popularized in the 90s, so you know, towards the end of the new tribe, it became polyamory. So the entrance to the commune, so yeah, yeah, yeah back to that. Polyintimacy, very, very similar to polyamory. If you think about even just the wording of it, it's, it's very, really quite similar. Uh, the entrance to the commune was extremely selective and included a six-month waiting period and a screening, screening for STDs. And that's absolutely wonderful, I feel, anyway. Kirista um, accumulated a codified social contract over its histories. All members were expected to agree with and comply with it at all times. Started with a few unwritten rules in 71 to 26 standards in 79, and then evolved to 84 standards by 83. By the time it all finished up in 91, there were over 100. So the rules changed quite a bit. But some examples from the 84 standards, so the one made in 83. Total rationality at all times. Search for truth through the elimination of contradictions. No jealousy, 
no anger, no rivalry, no sexism, no ageism, no racism, no classism, no duplicity, no alienation, no profanity, no flippancy, social tolerance, equality, verbality, participatory democracy, accountability, conviviality, graceful distancing, positive attitude towards the toggle switch mode of decision making. There is only one, there is one and only one objective, reality. So those are really kind of interesting ones in, in that uh, as well. But they had a group process called Gestaltorama, loosely taken from Fritz Perls' concept of Gestalt, enhanced awareness of sensation, perception, bodily feelings, emotion and behavior in the present moment. For Kirsten's Gestalt consisted of conversation in groups, maintaining personal resolve on the lifestyle. A euphemism for being aligned with the social contract was a daily task for many Kirstens. Being unresolved on the lifestyle, even momentarily or temporarily, was worthy of immediate Gestalt and possible expulsion from the family or commune. Practically, a member could be called out on any standards violation or non-utopian thought or action by anyone at any time. Now, the official website listed 44 people having joined the Kirist at the various times through the community's history, though way more than this passed through briefly. The commune population numbered 5 at founding in 1971 and numbered 25 at dissolution in 1991. Before dissolution, they were closer to 30 in residence. So the, the family structure of a Kyrgyzstan family was really quite interesting as well. It was mainly composed of fidelitous groups called BFICs, so Best Friend Identity Clusters. Kyrgyzstans practiced non-preferential polyfidelity, which requires consensus to accept a new person into the group, whether it be a man or a woman. Non-preferentiality was an important concept of Kirsten polyfidelity, so you couldn't choose one over another, it all had to be done as a group and same treatment all the way through. Had lofty goals, but was more intended to keep people from just coupling up as opposed to having groups. Non-preferentiality proved very difficult to achieve. Kirstens had a transitional celibacy period after joining the group of three months. It was occasionally waived. A single BFIC was composed of men and women who rotated sleeping with all of the opposite sex members on a balanced rotational sleeping schedule. Imagine how hard that would be to try and mix all that together. Oy. The sleeping schedule assigned to each family member to sleep with a different opposite sex partner each night. And since the BFICs were rarely balanced between men and women, typically more women than men, on any given night, several family members would have no partner to sleep with, and were assigned a zero night when they slept alone. In addition to the program sleeping schedule, it was permitted to sleep with any opposite sex family member at any time, which was termed a freebie. <laughs> Ooh, that's, a, that's a strange way to go, um, to, to call it a freebie. That um, is an odd way to put it, I think. Now, the the other interesting thing to me, uh, about Kirsten, like I said, there were only 25, 
44 people, often more that moved through. But they had a shared income and could choose whether to have outside paying jobs or work within the community, which operated several businesses actually this coming. It was a legally incorporated church and an educational non-profit organization. But there was one very, very uh, successful business that was started here. Uh, it was known as Abacus Incorporated, and it was an early Macintosh computer vendor in San Francisco. They eventually offered a variety of computer hardware, training and services, and at its height employed over 250 people at Abacus. Had offices in five major California cities and was voted the 33rd and 42nd fastest growing privately held company in America by Inc. Magazine in 90 and 91 respectively. Now, Abacus was part of the downfall of Kyrgyzstan, quite funnily enough. But it, it achieved revenues in excess of $25 million a year, and this was before the Apple Computer Corporation abandoned the value-added reseller in 92. In 91, Abacus was the top reseller of Macintosh computers in the Bay Area, so that's quite an interesting little part on how they made the money and, and that side of things. So, in 91, so this is at the end of, of it all, Bro Judd left the Purple Submarine and the Kyrgyzstan commu Commune after sharp divisions were exposed within the membership. Conflicts between Abacus and Kyrgyzstan had grown more acute as Abacus became more successful and difficult to manage. Other issues discussed during dissolution include allowing, included allowing less religious people into the commune and the loosening of superfluous rules. After many innocent incidents with members beginning to confront Judd's behaviour, Juff, Judd left Purple and Kirista. Within a few months, the community was dissolved by vote, and Bro Judd went on to create the World Academy of Kirista in Education. Several former members of the commune still live in San Francisco Bay Area, while a number moved to Hawaii and purchased a block of adjoining parcels of land. John Pressmont, or Bro Judd, died on November 13, 2009, in San Francisco. In his last years, he had been seen regularly on the Bro Judd show. In, on San Francisco's, San Francisco's public access television. So that sort of finished all of that up um, through Curious. But um, we'll, we'll move on to the, to the final part of um, the second wave, the, the 20th century side of it. Um, so support groups were a major part of this as well. They were informal and organized prototypical polyamorous, not using that word there though, support groups began to spread in the 1970s. The best known of which were Family Synergy in Los Angeles and Family Tree in Boston, inspired by Heinlein's 1961 novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. Oberon Zell founded the Church of All Worlds and its related Ravenheart clan still influential in the polyamorous movement today. Individuals started organizations focused on polyamory or polyfidelity, such as Ryan Nearing's Polyfidelitas Educational Productions, a group in Denver called Beyond Monogamy that met regularly and published an edited volume, and Deborah Annapol's Internet. Nearing and Annapol later teamed up to create Loving More magazine, which subsequently became Nearing's solo project, 
and has since then transitioned through several editors. Now, Lovingmore published articles, poetries, personal advertisements for, by, and about polyamorous people. But the big ones were obviously the family synergy and family tree, which sort of, you know, people go through issues in polyamory as well. It's not just, it's all, not all fine and dandy and lovely and great. And you do need that support group at times. And this is sort of what helped that. It also helped with people that were cheating on their partners and didn't know what it was to fix it. And they went to these sorts of support groups to try and figure out why it was they couldn't stay faithful to their partners. And they sort of learned about the whole non-monogamy and polyamory thing. And like I said, this moves into the into the late 90s. So it's it's when polyamory actually started becoming a word here, which is hugely important. And... So yeah, that was that was a major part of polyamory moving into a more recognised family unit, I guess, for lack of a better term. Finally, we'll move on to the third wave um, of polyamory in, well, especially in America, um, the impact of the internet. So there's there's research by Bargain McKenna, by Jenks, and by Wellman that indicate uh, that alternative sexual styles such as polyamory have increased with the advent of internet technology. There's, the reason for that is that it facilitates communication between geographically disparate people seeking support for alternative relationships. In recent years, the internet has proved an especially important site for community building among marginalized populations. Think fat life for your kinksters and swingers, or your red hot pie, or your OK Cupid, anything like that. Sexual nonconformists have populated the internet in droves, forming personal and sexual connections online. The impact of the World Wide Web on the polyamorous community would be difficult to overstate, from dating to discussing jealousy to asking for advice. Much polyamorous relating occurs online. The extensive network of internet communication spawned an impressive number of polyamorous websites, some of which I'll list uh, at the end of this episode. In addition to providing polyams with a convenient way to create community, give each other advice, and find partners, the, inf the internet has also significantly impacted how polyams interact with other sexual minorities. Specifically, polyamorous intersect significantly with bisexuals and kinksters, or people who practice BDSM, formerly known just as sadomasochism, apparently, according to this article. Um, and they, they overlap with both groups, online and in person as well. Where most second-wave polyamorous tended to have more a more singular identity, focused on swapping within heterosexual relationships, Third wave polys, which is what we're in now, I think, tend towards bisexual slash multisexual relationships that involve not only non-monogamy but sometimes other form of other forms of unconventional sexuality, like BDSM, like kink. There has been research, which I find quite interesting as well, that indicates if somebody is both poly and kinky, then their dominant identity identity is likely to be that of a kinkster. Whereas somebody who is poly but not kinky will have polyamory as their dominant uh, sexual identity, which I find quite interesting as well. So we'll move on to polyamorous websites. Um, there's 
far too many to to really list here, but I'm going to say a few that I that I know. Um, and these are some of the more important ones as examples of an online community. So you've got lovemore.com, is Loving More magazine's website. It includes not only a bulletin board but also a chat room. Frequently asked questions, stories, advice, events. The Love List, which is a summary of conversations that transpired on the electronic discussion board. It was emailed to subscribers and personal ads for those seeking others to engage in polyamorous relationships. Yahoo even lists over 100 polyamorous groups by region and interest, accessible through their romance and relationship section, or by entering the key search word polyamory. Alt.polyamory, if you remember, was probably the first real place that polyamory became a word back in 92, um, that contains an extensive list of polyamorous information, including six different FAQ pages. A glossary of acronyms, abbreviations, and new words found on polyamorous sites. A list of polyamorous resources, including fiction, non-fiction, music, movies, and poly-friendly professionals such as mental health counsellors and ministers willing to perform group marriages, art, and paraphernalia such as t-shirts and mugs. Alt.polyamory also hosts numerous topical email lists for specific subgroups, including activists, parents, triads, and those seeking intentional community. Those who wish to post or read personal ads are directed to alt.personals, soc.personals, or alt.personals.poly. The quote-unquote poly ring is for members only, and links diverse polyamorous sites across the web, polymatchmaker.com, list personal ads, or those seeking polyamorous relationships. It too is open to members only, though memberships are free. Finally, numerous polyamorous personal websites include stories of their polyamorous lifestyles, links to other pages, pictures, poetry, journal entries, artwork, information about upcoming events, and calls to activism as well. Polyamorous also linked to other related but not explicitly polyamorous websites include janesguide.com, which is a guide to alternative sex-oriented oriented sites on the web, and it's a favourite among web-savvy polyamorous, as is as is LiveJournal.com, a free site that allows writers to create journals online and choose to make their writing available to select others or to anyone visiting the site. It currently lists over 100 relevant community matches and over 1,300 users interested in polyamory. Sites that contain information about swinging may overlap with polyamorous sites, and the communities share personal ads at www.alt.alt.com. The polyamorous presence on the web is diverse, and it serves as a vital component of community formation and participation. I think that's a really, really important thing to sort of um, touch on, is how important the internet has become for polyamory to move into a more well, non-monogamy in general, I guess, into a more mainstream sort of way of living. Because I think in the past has been like, this isn't natural, for lack of a better term. This isn't right. These things that I'm feeling, what what the fuck is going on? But I think we're realising now that there's more and more people that think the same way that we do, that us so-called freaks think. But it's... 
it's good. Is all I'm all I'm trying to say there is that it's good that we're that it's becoming more into the mainstream and less punishable, I guess. And funnily enough, more traditional, as we spoke about in in the first in part one. It is actually traditional for well, polygyny is more traditional than what we call traditional marriages now. So it's kind of crazy, I think, that people that it's starting starting to become full circle. I wonder if this is going to be just another wave and it'll drop off again. I wonder if it's going to continue and become the norm. Who knows? All I know is that I enjoy what I do as part of this. I enjoy my little poly thing that I have going on that I enjoy. But um, yeah, that's we're going to leave it there for today. It's a decently short episode for you. There's obviously a lot that I miss out on. I can't touch on every single bit of history and non-monogamy within a couple of episodes. But it's it's sort of giving you an outline and and, and a lot more information on uh, the journey of non-monogamy from from ancient Mesopotamia up until the modern day with the internet. And I really hope you've enjoyed going through this with me. Um, I've enjoyed it a lot. It's been really interesting for me to go through and learn all of these different things. I hope you've enjoyed it as well, obviously. I wouldn't want you to sit there and hate it. Um, but, yeah, tune in again next week and we'll talk soon. And, hey, enjoy your life. Your boyfriend, he's my favorite person and my number one friend. Every time I get drunk, I try to seduce him, so I can't drink around him. It's becoming a problem. I've only got two hands, but I'm ambidextrous. I can do many things at the same time. They say it's dangerous, but baby, I'm just asking is it promiscuous or is it multitasking? Fine, and this one tastes so bland. so bland, but I should wait a half an hour. I could get a cramp. Mama says I 
Thank you. 